welcome to the City Point Church podcast. Thanks for joining us. Every day is an opportunity to take hold of. So we hope this message inspires you and builds your faith, that it helps you have more of a God perspective for your day. Enjoy. Let me share with you this morning, in the time that we have, a subject called Dusty Hearts and Dry Eyes. I want to read to you from the book of 2 Kings. Um, It's in the Old Testament. It's a story about a prophet called Elijah. There were two prophets, Elijah and Elijah. This is the the second prophet, Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19 says this. Now the men of the city said to Elijah, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said to him, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage will come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elijah spoke. It's interesting in verse 21 there where it says, I've healed this water. That word heal, right here it relates to death and miscarriage. But when you do a study on that word heal... It actually means a healing for nations. And there is no doubt in this place that the water that is coming out of this place will be a healing to all nationalities who find Christ in this place. What I want to unpack with us this morning is this, is that it's kind of this this odd tension in this scripture because it says, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees. So the city looked good, but then as they began to talk, He says, but the water is bad, therefore the land is unfruitful. So on the surface, what you saw looked really good. Everything seemed to be perfect. It kind of, you know, it it looked like it was working and in good order and healthy. But as you investigated, the water was toxic. Therefore, the land itself is barren and unfruitful. And it's interesting because as you read this, it kind of represents, I think, a lot of churches today that look good. Everything on the surface looks fantastic. I mean, they've got the best buildings, the best car parks, the best coffee. The, you know, you rock up on a Sunday morning and it's like a cocktail party for successful people. Everything seems to be, just looks so, so good. But when you get beneath the surface... The water or the methods are toxic and the people who are in it are actually unfruitful and barren. I know it represents a lot of our lives. It's represented my life where everything looks good. Hey, I'm a leader of a network of churches. Yeah, yeah, I've got it all together. But on the inside, feeling unfruitful and feeling my own heart is barren. And this morning with... For you and I, as God is doing what He's doing in this place and what He is about to do and accelerate in this place, I don't want anyone to miss out. All of us want to be a part of it, but it's more than likely that hardness of heart is the greater threat to our ability to reach this generation and to reach this community with the gospel than anything else. And this morning, you may dress like a Christian, Your kids may have their hair parted like Christians. If you're new here, we don't part hair like Christians, okay? There's no such thing. (laughs) 
But on the inside, you may be so empty. Your heart may be so hard. We've all been through a lot the last couple of years. But the good news is is that God wants to meet with you and I. And as a leader of a denomination, I know what it is like to look good on the outside, but on the inside have a heart that is desperately needing God to meet with. And to feeling, you know, a couple of years ago, I went through a burnout and to be feeling depressed and anxious and sad and and yet having to run this organization and be happy for people and be positive for people and had this callousness of my heart begin to grow where I didn't even know whether God still loved me the same way. And maybe you feel like that this morning. John chapter 7, Jesus said this in verse 38, and it represents every person in every church. This is his goal for you and I. It says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The answer to this community is you and I having a heart that out from it flow life-giving water. Now, it's great to have a church collectively that can do it. I love what you guys are doing with the hampers. Thank God for churches who aren't just here to keep people happy on a Sunday, to keep Christians saved and in the church, but we want to make a difference in our community. But what really makes the difference is each individual being a fountain, a flood of living water to your neighbor in your high school, in your university, in your workplace. That's what God needs. But if you go back to the story in 2 Kings, everything looked good, but the water source was toxic. Therefore, the land was unfruitful. And folks, let me tell you this morning, if the devil had a mission statement, a vision statement, it would simply be steal them, as in take them to a Christless eternity, or sterilize them. Either way, he wins. Either steal them, take them to hell, or just make them unfruitful. Just let them come to church, but let their hearts be hard and barren. And let the church run everything, but the individuals kind of sit there on their wallets and their hands with a cork in the water source. But right now, prophetically, God is in the business of... I'll get it. (laughs) Popping that cork out of you and I so that we can be again that river of living water to people. So, dusty hearts and dry eyes. In psychology, there is a statement or a a habit pattern called called habituation. Habituation is when you get something new, like when you buy a new car, if you've had the the joy of doing that, and you go, I'm going to wash this car every week. And it lasts for the first week, and then it's every two weeks, and then it's once a month, and then it's whenever you can go through a drive-through car wash. (laughs) Habituation is when you receive something, but you become familiar with it so fast. Could we be living in an age where we also suffer from spiritual habituation? Where you are in something that God is doing and moving, but we can fall asleep and go on autopilot whilst in it. And one of our greatest challenges in life is fighting this spiritual habituation so that we can stay on the edge of our faith and say, God, you've called me to a life of joy, a life to be a a, a stream of living water. I want to be that person. 
And you would think the longer, for those of you that have been a follower of Jesus for many years, you would think that the longer we follow Jesus, the softer our heart should become. The more flexible, the more pliable, the more filled with joy we should become as we get older. But I don't know whether it's working out that way for a lot of people. A lot of people I work with as they get older are getting more grumpy, more miserable. They complain about everything. Aircon's too cold, it's too hot, coffee's lukewarm. Don't get a coffee today, don't like that barista, he's got a big beard and tattoos. They're the only ones that can make good coffee, I heard. But we really should be the ones as we mature in Christ that we are giving out more water from the heart. But the heart, through unmet expectations, through disappointments, through unforgiveness, through bitterness, and all these things that compile in our life, because the longer you get, or the older you get, the longer your past becomes. And it's easy for our hearts to become hard. And you can try and move house to find that joy. You can change jobs to find the joy. You can change partners, change churches. 2023, you can even change genders looking for the joy. But wherever you are, there you are. Why don't we start with trying to change hearts? Why don't we say, God, before I go chasing another wife, another husband, another house, another shot of joy somewhere, can you come and change my hard heart? I'm missing something in my life. I don't have the joy anymore. I don't have the vision anymore. It's not the church's fault. It's our hearts. And sooner or later, our behavior will eventually mirror what's in our hearts. So let me read to you from Hosea chapter 12, verse, oh, chapter 10, verse 12. It says this. Sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fellow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he comes rain and comes and rains righteousness on you. I've heard this verse preached and shouted many, many times, but no one actually ever explained to me what fellow ground is. Kathy and I live on acreage now. We've got four horses, five chickens, so I'm getting to understand what it means to have soil that you can actually grow grass in so that horses can eat and not cost you a lot of money buying hay for them all the time. Fellow ground, I want you to hear this. Fellow ground is the soil that was useful in a previous season but is no longer useful today. Fellow ground is soil that through time, through the weathering and elements, disappointments, bitterness, unforgiveness has become hard, it's become crusty, it's become weedy, immovable and stony. And the only way to use that ground again is to release what they call the tiller or the plough to begin to turn over that soil. Because here's the thing, underneath every layer of fallow ground is good topsoil. And what the tiller would do, the tiller wouldn't get rid of the topsoil, it would just turn it over so that the good topsoil underneath the hard topsoil could come over to the surface. And then the farmer could drop seed in it. 
And I want to let you know this morning that when Hosea prophesies, come on, we've got to sow in righteousness. We're going to reap in mercy. It's time to seek the Lord. Break up the fallow ground. What he's saying is this, allow the Holy Spirit to come and to begin to mess and to till with your heart, to plow your heart because the good topsoil is just beneath the surface. And God has seed that He wants to drop in there. He has hope, He has faith, He has vision, He has purpose, He has destiny that He wants to drop into the topsoil of your heart. And one of the reasons why you you may sit there and go, why does things seem to be happening in other people's world and not my world? Could it be that the hardness of your heart, God is dropping seed, but it's landing on weathered, stony, weedy hearts. But just beneath the surface is good topsoil. You may have been following Jesus for 40 years. I want to let you know, no matter what disappointments you've had, no matter what pain you've had, beneath the surface is good topsoil. God's not done with you yet. But what it takes is a humility on our behalf that says, God, I'm not what I was. I've lost something. I've lost an edge in my life. Could it be that my heart's gone a little bit hard? And you'll know it's hard because we become slightly cynical. And cynicism is when you step away from the dance floor and you sit in the first row and you make fun of everyone who is on the dance floor. And you judge everything when you go home after church, judge this, judge that. A little bit of cynicism. And Hosea Hosea prophesies, break up the fellow ground. Break it up. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, about Jesus. But as he came closer to Jerusalem, this is Jesus, he saw the city ahead and began to weep. Ever gone to a place like that? How I wish today that all of you people would understand the way to peace, but now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Other versions say that Jesus, when it said he began to weep, that he lost it or he burst into tears. This was not an Aussie man tear. Jesus didn't go, a bit dusty out here. (laughs) As Jesus approached Jerusalem, the Bible says he wept, he lost it. From a well that was within him, came out of his eyes, he lost it. And I want to let you know that I believe prophetically that what God is doing now and what will be a, a characteristic of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is very close in this nation, if not already beginning to happen. What you will see is no longer dusty hearts and dry eyes, but we're going to find soft hearts and tears again will come back to the church. When we're in worship and we have no more words to express but tears down our cheeks. When we're in prayer and we cannot think of the words anymore to move the heart of God and tears will stream down our cheeks. Folks, this morning I want you to know that our tears are liquid prayers. They are liquid desperation. Our tears are born out of a human inability to make anything happen. And in revival praying, and I know you guys are a praying church and I love being in a praying environment. 
But I've led thousands of prayer meetings over the years. And most prayer meetings where there are dusty hearts and dry eyes, the person leading the prayer meeting, all the, they're like the conductor trying to wind everyone up all the time. We're going to pray for lost people. Everyone goes, blah, 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 blah. we're going to pray. Blah, 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 blah. And we look at your watch and it's only been 10 minutes. You've got another 15 minutes to go. It's like, oh Lord, the longest hour of my life. But let me tell you what God is about to do will not be about someone at the front having to conduct prayer. It's going to be about a room full of people who will find space in an auditorium somewhere, in a bedroom or in a car somewhere, and tears. That's revival praying. It's not about the eloquence of our articulation or how theologically correct my prayers are, thank goodness. But it's about the depth of our soul that reaches out to God and a great desire for Him to move on our behalf. Our tears cry out and say, God, would you come down? God, would you touch my family? God, would you touch my marriage? Would you move in my children? Would you bring home my prodigal? God, in my life, in my healing that I need, would you touch my body? God, would you touch our nation? God, I need a breakthrough. Tears are not about emotionalism. They're not just talking about tears of sorrow and woe. We're not just talking about crying because of hard seasons, although that's not bad. I'm talking about tears that are a statement of our humanity and our inability to make anything happen without God. Psalm 39 verse 12, Mel shared earlier, Psalm 42. Again, this is a Psalm of David. It says, hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cries for help. Don't ignore my tears. I love the way David says that, because isn't it true, you can be in a discussion with your spouse and you can feel like you're pretty much winning the fight and all your wife has to do is shed a tear. Everything changes. Everything changes with a cry. Suddenly all this softness comes over you, you realize what a, what a blockhead you've been. And, and David says here, God, don't ignore my tears. Because tears flow where solutions cease. In Joel chapter 2 verse 12, Joel again prophetically declares this, Turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting. There's an old discipline that's come, making a comeback. With fasting, with weeping and with mourning. And then in verse 28, we get the verse that we all like to preach about and shout, and then it will come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Tears come when you run out of options. They're a language of their own. Tears are an expression of a soul that's on the other side of words. And God won't be silent at your tears. And folks, this morning, we've gone way too long with too many dry-eyed, clean-cut, polished, articulate, and good-looking preachers. <laughs> Except for Graham and I. <laughs> it's exhausting. They say all the right words. They have all the perfect sermons. But where are the tears? Where again do we feel the heart of God? 
where we're not so interested in Instagram followers or having to have the biggest church, the biggest brand. But we want to be a people that are moved by what moves God. Jeremiah, and maybe the musicians can come, Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. But that's actually not a good description. Jeremiah is the prophet of a weeping God. And in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, again, prophetically, he's speaking to Judah and he says this, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night. Jeremiah prophesies that as he walks the streets and sees the heartache of people, sees the brokenness of people. In Psalm 119, verse 136, it says this, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. There is something about a person that puts embarrassment aside and allows a deep hunger in their heart to cry out to God, unashamed, that allows the depth of our soul that says, God, give me a revival or I die. Bring home my son or my daughter. There's something about a person that has such a deep hunger in their heart for God to come and make a change in their family, in their marriage. In Psalm 126, verse 4, it says this, Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They will weep as they go to plant their seed, but they will sing as they return with the harvest. Well, you know that your tears are seeds that you're sowing into the ground. Kathy and I have spent many tears sowing for certain parts of our family that aren't walking in the way that we'd always wish they would. Because sometimes, after many years of praying for someone, you just run out of things to say without feeling like you're repeating the same stuff all the time. And sometimes it's not about the articulation of the words. It's about the depth of the emotion of your heart that recognizes, God, I can't make this happen. I need you. I was in Papua New Guinea last week with our network of churches. We've got 300 churches in Papua New Guinea. And we haven't been there for four years due to COVID. And I felt beforehand, I said to Kathy, I feel like I need to fast for this. Uh, one, because the food's normally really sketchy anyway. So it's a good time if you're going to fast. That's a perfect time. But two, I just felt there was this, this heaviness over our churches. And the Monday night uh, meeting was approaching. I was speaking that Monday night. And so beforehand in my room, I'm just praying. And, and in a way that I haven't really experienced a lot of, I found myself on the ground just weeping. Just weeping, weeping, weeping. And every time I'd go to pray, I just had no words. It was just like these tears. I had worship music playing and 
went to the meeting that night and, and you could feel the heaviness in the place and the formalism and traditionalism that had crept in over there. And again, I'm just reminded, God, I've sowed in tears. That was seed. We're not going to, this time will not be wasted. And I was so excited that by Thursday, by the time we left, and there was a, a few of us there, not just me, that place was alive with the power of God, like alive. Now, when people, people in Papua New Guinea get alive, they, they, they're not like us and go, oh, that's beautiful. Alive. I mean, these people were grabbing pot plants and running around the building with them on their heads. I mean, they, they didn't know any other way to express it. Picking up chairs, running around in the building, and it was alive. And I want to encourage you this morning that our seeds are tears. And Psalm 126 actually is a promise. It says the greatest weepers will also be the greatest reapers. Those that sow with tears, those that have planted with tears will have shouts of joy bringing home the harvest. For every mum and dad that's still praying for your wayward child or family member, every young person that's praying for your parents, every tear you shed is a seed in the ground for their eternal inheritance. Every seed, every tear, another seed, another seed, another seed. And God won't ignore our tears. The tears are living and they'll bring forth something glorious in the next season. The tears you are sowing in this season will come forth in joy in the next season. And I know for me, when I was going through my burnout, the, the, the multitude of tears that Kathy witnessed me shed. Tears of failure, tears of insecurity, tears of of identity crisis, everything I was going through. And to see here, a year or two later, a year later, I look back and I go, God, those seeds, those tears weren't wasted. They were planted in the ground for such a time as this. And truth be told, we have literally tried everything in the church to change this generation. We've built bigger churches, bigger outreaches, bigger conferences. We've released more products, more Bibles in every translation. We've come up with more sophisticated ways and polished ways to do outreach and evangelism. We even prophesy in a polished way. Every ministry under the sun, we do better than we ever have before. But have we ever tried tears? I've got a photo I want to show you. Don't know which screen we look at here. You guys have that photo? There we go. This is me with hair. William Booth. Uh, hero of mine. Ever since I first became a follower of Jesus, I uh, read a whole bunch of books about him and his wife, Catherine. They're the founders of the Salvation Army. And William Booth was one of the greatest evangelists and pastors and preachers. They had a motto in the Salvation Army, blood and fire. That was their whole drive. They, were, they were, had this urgency and this hunger for the Holy Spirit to ignite with their ability to be charitable. And it's almost like what I see over your, you guys' lives. Like, like, like here it's that we're, we're going for the Holy Ghost. We're going for the blood and the fire. We're going to preach the gospel. But they also had a motto that said soap, soup and salvation. We want to serve people as well as share Jesus with people. So it's not one or the other, it's both. 
But many years ago when they first started, William Booth was sending people out all over the world to start Salvation Army Works. And oftentimes it was to the worst parts of, of different nations. And one group of soldiers he sent was to Los Angeles to bring the gospel there. And after laboring for three years, the workers in Los Angeles sent a telegram to William Booth, letting him know that they have tried every technique and every strategy, yet had seen no fruit. They asked him if they could move to another station and take on another city. William Booth sent back a telegram with a two-worded response. Try tears. Pray until your heart is moved with tears. Pray until your heart breaks for what breaks God's. And you know what happened? They got that telegram. They prayed with tears and a revival broke out in that part of Los Angeles through the workers of the Salvation Army.